Welcome to Access Utah. I'm Tom Williams. My guest for the hour today is visual artist Sam Vernon. She earned her MFA in painting and printmaking from Yale University in 2015, her BFA from Cooper Union for the Embalsment of Science and Art in 2009. Her installations combine Xerox drawings, photographs, paintings, and sculptural components in an exploration of personal narrative and identity. She uses installation and performance to honor the past while revising historical memory. And uh, she has most recently exhibited with We Buy Gold, Interstitial Gallery, Coney uh, Art Walls, uh, Brooklyn Museum, Queens Museum, Fowler Museum, UCLA, Seattle Art Museum. Sam Vernon lives in Oakland and uh, California, teaches printmaking as an assistant professor at California College of the Arts. Welcome to the program. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for having me. And uh, Sam Vernon uh, appears on this program as part of the Kane College of the Arts and USU's Year of the Arts. And she was on campus recently to give a, a, a talk in the Communitas lecture uh, series. Um, so, uh, very interesting process that, that you have. Some of your works are very large. Mm-hmm. Uh, some, are, some are smaller. Um, I guess the place to start is, uh, how did you get your start in art? Well, I come from a family of creative people. My father is a painter. My mother is a designer. She's a fashion forecaster. So from a very young age, I was exposed to art. And um, within my education, my parents always made sure that I was in art-focused programs. So I was in a talented and gifted program when I was in elementary school that had a great art program. I went on to be in a visual art, visual and performing arts program in middle school. Um, these, this, these were programs in Maryland. And again, I went into another visual and performing arts program for high school. So it's just, it's been a part of my life since I was a young young child and mm. then I knew when I was in high school that I wanted to per- pursue a professional career in the arts which is what led me to applying to art colleges like the Cooper Union. What do you think uh, all that art in your upbringing did for you? I uh, guess obviously it yeah. led you into a career in the art but, but besides that. Uh, it shaped it, it definitely shaped me. I'm, I have other interests. I have parallel practices. I'm, I also love to write um, but in terms of visual thinking um, it really helped me strategize the world around me and my relationship to it. Um, I think also uh, growing up in a suburban area, both in Fairfield, Connecticut, and later in Prince George's County, Maryland, knowing that I had access to places like D.C. or to go up to New York, um, where my family lived and where my mother worked um, on a f- with freelance opportunities to just go into the Museum of Modern Art, to go into the Met and see all of these amazing works of art. That exposure shaped my understanding of the world, and my art education had a lot to do with that, kind of me, encouraging me to go see what was out there. Mm. Uh, your uh, mother's a f- uh, fashion forecaster? Yes. What is a fashion forecaster? Well, a fashion forecaster is someone who predicts the trends. So okay. every time you go into a store, there were people behind the, the decisions that led the clothing to to for you to be able as the consumer to purchase it. So my mother um, does a lot of design work way in advance um, to determine what's coming up next. And she draws everything out. Um, in a very um, design-oriented way so that then those those drawings can be produced into garments and then sold to us as 
consumers out in the world. Pretty important work for, I guess, uh, you know, companies, clothing companies. <laughs> yes, yeah. You, you don't want to make the wrong bet, right? Tony? You don't, because if you're if you're off trend, then it can cost you tons of money. So yeah. um, I knew from my mother's work that uh, there were so many kinds of cre- uh, creative careers. It seems like such a niche that my mother found, mm. but there's actually a lot of so so many different ways to mm. approach a creative design work or creative um, contemporary artwork. Good news for the students like the at USU where you yeah. presented, right? Yeah. Yes, yes. I'm always encouraging my would would you know whenever I'm in conversation with students, I'm always encouraging them to think about how many possibilities there are professionally and not to um, limit themselves. Hmm. Now, we'll encourage people, as you're listening, it, it's it's hard to fully appreciate visual art on the radio. And so yes. we'll encourage people, while you're listening to this, go to Sam Vernon's website, uh, samvernon.com, and there's a lot of examples of your artwork there. And while we're talking about these works, you can, you can pull those up and Look at them. We'll do our best to describe them as we go along. Uh, you have a very interesting uh, process, uh, you know, d- different processes. I think one that people latch on to is your Xeroxed, Xeroxed, you know, copies. You Copies of copies of copies. Yes. You draw on the copy. So you can describe it better than I can. What uh, What do you do? Sure. So while, when I was an undergrad, I was uh, focusing a lot of my – it was an interdisciplinary program in which I didn't have to declare a major. But I was spending a lot of time in the print shop. And uh, I studied lithography. I studied intaglio. I studied relief. I studied um, screen printing. And so I was exposing myself to printmaking. And what I learned from printmaking is the methodology behind the multiple, right? So be- being able to create an image and then um, – rework it within its within the process of um, the addition process um, and working on it multiple times. However, after I graduated, I didn't have um, access to the print shop as, as readily, and I was trying to find my ground. I had an office job at, at Baruch College in the city, and um, I ran one of my drawings in pen and ink through the Xerox machine, and since then I've just been in love with um, its ability to um, rather quickly um, create multiple copies of an original image and then what that uh, repetition does when it's installed within an ins- with, within a larger piece or within an immersive environment that the viewer can experience. Maybe we could start out on a smaller scale and then get larger with this because mm-hmm. it's very interesting what you do. Mm-hmm. You did a piece for the New York Times, uh, their series 30 Under 30. Yes. Um, in which, while you, while the interviewer was talking with you, you were making a piece of art. Yes, yeah. people can uh, they can um, just uh, Google up thirty under thirty New York yeah. Times and, and see that. Yeah. Uh, so tell us what what piece you were what the tell us about that piece you were creating there. That was a, that opportunity was very very meaningful to me because I had actually it was there, for so many reasons I had never um, attempted to draw live <laughs> in front of a. Um, an, an audience that was watching from any their device at home or on the go or whatever. And so uh, I went into their office space and created the drawing as I was uh, speaking with um, the woman who was interviewing me. And my goal was to just use use an already existing piece that that piece that I was responding to um, in particular was done by Carrie James Marshall. So to use a, 
our existing artwork and respond to it because that's something that I do in my own practice when I'm trying to find ideas in order to create um, my own work. And so um, as a proposal, I used a piece um, by Carrie James Marshall that inspired a self-portrait of sorts. And then I ran that drawing through the Xerox copier at um, different... Um, One could say different functions. Uh, You can do a lot with the Xerox copier. You can increase value. You can um, change uh, you can change the scale of the drawing. You can collage into something that, that you've made and rework it. So pretty pretty quickly. So I just was able to introduce people um, to that concept um, in a live <laughs> drawing workshop, right. if you will. And so it was it was fun. It was I mean definitely a lot of pressure to to do it all in the New York Times mm-hmm. yeah. office eighth floor. Right. <laughs> but but I I loved I loved that experience. It, it was a live Facebook event, right? Yes, yes, yes. Um, People could respond. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the original piece was called a portrait of the artist as a shadow of his former self. Mm -hmm. That's that's interesting. What what was he originally trying to do? And then what what was your dialogue, I guess, with his work of art? So one thing I love about Carrie James Marshall is that he's able to use um, as as a African-American man and um, really directly referencing the black experience um, that. And his in, in his relationship to to um, black subjects, um, I thought to myself, well, this seems like a perfect way for me to um, kind of draw a line between a, a point of connection between what he's trying to do and what I'm trying to do, which is um, represent both myself and my autobiographical content um, within a figurative platform. I mean, I I work in abstraction, but I think figuration is is a, a, a uh, a way for me to um, really cement my my um, ideas about what it means to to represent oneself hmm. in the work. Now, you told this interview at the New York Times mm-hmm. that um, it's fairly unusual that you would create a piece of art that quickly. Of course, you, you were doing <laughs> yeah. you were doing that for them. Yes, <laughs> and that was interesting to see. But that how long does it take you to to do a well, that, that is, uh, that's a really funny thing, Tom, because I will maybe, I'll create a drawing that could be made in a half an hour, an hour or more, but then I'll continue over time to go back into it and rework it over and over again through my process with the Xerox copier. So what you saw in that Facebook Live interview was just the beginning, and mm-hmm. I, um, I've been working on some of the same images for years. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah. And so, uh, in effect, it, it's continuing dialogue with your former self. You yeah. know, just, <laughs> like he was a portrait artist that shadowed his former self. Right. So if you take that long and, and then you take pieces which are then part of a larger installation yeah. on top of your the process for the smaller works, which is uh, a drawing Xerox that, draw on top of that, and it might be many iterations. So many iterations. And what I love about that is that I can always return to um, an original drawing and feel as if I'm bending time, you know, because I'm, I'm able to make something new out of it just it, within its sort of newest iteration or how it feels in proximity to whatever I'm proposing as mm. the, the space of the of what's in the gallery or the museum. So, so yeah. uh, I'd like to go from a little bit smaller to very big. Mm. I, I was looking at, a, there's a video on YouTube um of and and video you get the um advantage of you're you're able to 
kind of see it a little more clearly than really just with the picture. Uh, installation that was originally uh, was for Seattle. Yes. In Seattle. Right, yeah. Then it showed to other places. Mm-hmm. T- tell us about that installation. That was wonderful. I was invited to do a, pri- uh, a sort of um, one-person uh, commission for the Olympic Sculpture Park uh, in anticipation of um, a show about masquerade within um, African art. And I was at first pretty puzzled about how I would approach such a space. I mean, it was definitely the largest space that I um, worked in. The architecture of the space is very unique. Um, it, it sits within the pavilion that I was working in, sits within a sculpture park. Um, there's a Richard Serra <laughs> right next to that building. You know, there's a Roxy Payne in front of it. There's a beautiful sort of sloping um, landscape that leads to the to a view of the water and, and beautiful sunlight that comes in through the windows of the space. So I, I knew I wanted to play with with all of that and be uh, have like a very simple design that both related to um, the, the, the sort of height and the structure of the space with the ceilings and um, the sort of industrial quality of the steel ceilings and hardware up there, but then also um, play with um, the shadows and the light that were coming in at different points of day through pattern and repetition on the walls. So, so there's collage, there's fabric. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell us a little bit more about the materials here. Sure. I um, actually collaborated with my mother to bring this <laughs> full circle um, on what I call my canopies. And the canopies were hanging. They were l- very large, 18 by, oh, I think they were 18 by 48 feet um, each. Um, and they they hung from the ceilings. And um, I created my own unique textiles to be printed on cotton um, and there were times when the museum, when it was open to the public for different events, um, th- they would open that uh, the, the doors to the pavilion, and, and you could kind of feel the sort of wind blowing through the canopies, which was really nice, and um, that's what I wanted there. And then for the wall treatment, I had collage uh, printed on vinyl, and the, the drawings and images were sourced from what I was talking about before just like years of working on the same images and seeing which ones could fit together for a conversation now i can't remember the exact title of this one piece in seattle it had ghost in the yeah how ghosts sleep seattle. how ghosts sleep in yeah. seattle mm-hmm. uh, that's a sort of a recurring theme at least in the in the, in the titles mm-hmm. uh, tell me about ghosts yes i i think the ghosts that come from both the uh, conceptual idea that within printmaking, those who who have done printmaking know about the term the ghost. And the ghost is when, yeah, you ink up your plate, right? And you have this like pristine image, but then you also, after that goes through the press, you you, you have all this ink left over on your plate and you can print that and that's what's considered the ghost. <laughs> so I, I like to think about that as a way of, of working too. I mean when I'm when I'm printing I'm thinking there are some pieces that are um, more more figuratively dealing with with ghosts in terms of like um, a kind of haunting and kind of exploration of what a, a visual manifestation of what a ghost can be. But conceptually, a ghost can also be like a trace. It could be a, some remnant. It can be sort of the after image or the after effect of what was once there. Hmm. Is any of this come from a personal place? It's definitely coming Ghosts? from a okay. personal mm-hmm. place, yes. Um, much of my work has to do with uh, a kind of um, 
detachment from um, my own personal history, not really knowing because of our racialized past in this country um, my where my ancestors came from or what they experienced beyond my great-grandparents, you know. So um, the Atlantic slave trade really destroyed that possibility. And so thinking about... Um, the, go- the ghosts of my past, my, my personal past, and what um, my family went through in order for me to be here today. So mm. that's definitely very personal. Mm-hmm. Um, you do deal with issues of race. By the way, mm-hmm. it was an interesting experience watching that uh, New York Times 30 Under 30 live Facebook event. Of course, <laughs> for me, it was long since many months past. Yeah. But, and I didn't know this, the, the comments that were coming in <laughs> – are, are, are quote-unquote live, right? Yes, they are live, yeah. Um, and so as you're watching, you're creating this piece of art, and uh, it starts out respectful, and uh, <laughs> people are... And, and I don't know if it's, you got some trolls there. Yeah, people, definitely got some trolls. Um, <laughs> it, it, <laughs> it delves into some racist stuff. Mm-hmm. And then some pushback. Kind of in microcosm, the, the, you know, the, the stuff that goes on, I guess, on Facebook and other media... Every day. Mm-hmm. I don't know if you went back and looked at those comments. You know what? One of my rules in going into that project, Tom, is that I was I was not going to look at the comments. Um, I was told from friends and family what some of the comments were, and that I was also receiving a lot of support mm-hmm. um, and pushback. Uh, f- uh, and so that's what's really encouraging. I mean, whenever you put yourself in a position like that, whether it's you know a social media platform or television or like radio like we are now the response from the public can can come in any it can can come in many different uh, forms <laughs> i'll yeah. say and um but for me it was important not to not to go into the comments because i feel whether it's a youtube video or a live video the, it's that's it's it's really it's just problematic you know mm. you, you it's not like you can address all of those people yeah <laughs> uh, yeah exactly mm. exactly and and you know it kind of it kind of devolves into a lowest common denominator mm-hmm. if, you, if you really engage on that level right uh so i guess my follow-up question to that would be how do you how do you engage in these issues uh, from the perspective of art how do you how do you try to I try, yeah, I tried through. I mean, I mean, I I felt that doing that interview was this, was art activism. Um, it was me being able to use my body, use my work, and and kind of talk about projects that I'm interested in and blackness and all of the things. Now the response was what it was, but it's not my job as an artist to to correct people. That's not my intention, but it is to kind of share. And, and to hopefully find a level of understanding yeah. between us all. So um, some of the projects that I talked about in that interview I'm still very involved in. Um, I'm a part of a collective that originated in New York um, called Black Women Artists for Black Lives Matter. And we've done several installations um, globally. Um, we held an, events at the New Museum. We've done projects at, in Houston, Texas, at Project Row Houses, which was amazing. Um, we've had um, installations at the Tate in in, um, in England. So, yeah, it's it's really great. Um, I, I wonder what if you've ever heard this line of argument mm-hmm. um, that uh, you know, in issues of race, for example, let's just take that. Mm-hmm. That the political is the most important, that we have to go straight to the political, we have to effect change, 
art's just sort of a corollary. Hmm. I, don't know, I don't know what you would say to that. Well, I, you know, it's funny. The I don't think that you can separate the personal from the political. You know, so if I am making work, I'm not, I'm making work in the world. I'm not like off on some deserted island or something. So mm-hmm. because I'm making work in the world and what's happening in the world is um, coming into my studio, coming into my my thinking, coming into um, the ways in which I, I deal with my students and, and we grapple with all these issues. It makes sense that it would also um, be articulated within my, my visual art practice, mm-hmm. right? So um, I don't see it as, as the political as being separate, but deeply personal, actually. Uh, we'll take a short break right now. We're talking with Sam Vernon, visual artist, uh, who is uh, was recently on the USU campus to give a presentation in the Comunitas Lecture Series, part of the uh, USU's Year of the Arts, and uh, specifically in the Kane College of the Arts, this uh, event. And we're doing an episode a month here on Access Utah, and uh, for November, our conversation with Sam Vernon is part of the Year of the Arts. Uh, more following this break. We're back with Sam Vernon. Um, she is earned her MFA at, uh, in painting and printmaking from Yale University, her BFA from Cooper Union for the Advancement of Science and Art. Her installations combine Xerox drawings, uh, photographs, paintings, and sculptural components in an exploration of personal narrative and identity. She uses installation and performance to honor the past while revising historical memory. And uh, she teaches printmaking as an assistant professor at California College of the Arts, lives in Oakland, and was on the USU campus recently as a part of the USU Year of the Arts as part of the Comunitas Lecture uh, Series. Um, so, uh, Sam Vernon, I want to, uh, to talk about this, uh, this in your, in your bio, um, that you use installation performance to honor the past while revising historical memory. Mm-hmm. Maybe we could expand on that. Maybe uh, give an example, perhaps. Sure. Uh, there have been in, within my my um, education some, some gaps <laughs> mm-hmm. um, that I had to do a lot of personal uh, research in order to fill. Um, many times, the 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 readings or the articles um, or the just in general the syllabi that I received as a student um, did not really meet my interests in terms of like what I wanted to learn and what I wanted to study, um, and so I had to find that, find that information out. So when I talk about refi- revising historical memory, it's both um, art historically in the sense that many of the artists that I learned about within my education were great and wonderful, but not necessarily um, directly in conversation with me. And so I, I, I've been working on a project, actually, um, that I'll use then as example with my friend uh, Layla Weaver in Oakland. It's called um, Black Printed Matter. It's her con- She con- um, conceived of this idea and brought me on to help her out. But basically, it, we are um, working together to create a, a, a both, both an online, digital, and physical archive of black printmakers. And that's important because when I was in school, not only did I not have any... Um, 
printmakers who looked like me teaching me, um, but I I also didn't have any um, points of reference for who the who those folks were who were making and and I think that um, one needs to see themselves in uh, their education in order to to believe that they can actually <laughs> you know do the things that they they want to do and do them successfully and do them well. So um, it's I, we want to use this as an educational tool. Um, we want to use this as um, as as a, a way for folks to discover new work as well that were new in the sense that maybe they haven't seen it before. Um, so so that's an example of what I mean by hi- revising historical memory, that we have a, a huge um, opportunity here to fill the gaps um, and the voids within our education or within our research. Yeah. Uh, who are some of your inspirations? Oh, I have so many. Um, some of them, most of them these days are... Um, are my peers who really, um, because we're, we're all in the same boat, we're like, we're trying to be in studio, we're trying to make our work, we're also trying to, um, we're mostly, we're educators, <laughs> so um, we're, we're working with students. So um, m- one of my heroes is my friend Didier Williams, who's a painter and um, works over on the East Coast at PAFA and the art department there, and he's just incredible. He was recently written up in the New York Times for his painting show um, that's on view currently in the city. Um, Steve Locke is another um, mentor and incredible artist and and educator who works in Massachusetts um, and teaches there. Um, Who else am I missing? I'm I'm inspired constantly um, by, by... people who are committed to um, expanding the presence of black contemporary art, both in their education um, practices and pedagogy, and also within their studio practice. Hmm. What, what about writers? Um, hmm. who, who have you, who do you pick up? Who do you go back to? Well, I'm actually right now really excited about um, Cydia Hartman because I had not um, read her work and I had heard a lot about it. So um, I'm reading Lose Your Mother, which is an incredible um, book about her, a, a, a book I would say about self-exploration as it relates to actually traveling to um, Ghana, which could be conceived of as like a motherland of sorts, right, and trying to... Um, figure out how one um, deals with belonging, <laughs> right? Mm-hmm. Belonging to some to to a place, or um, and 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 if one if it doesn't feel like one is being accepted, how do you then grapple with the detachment mm-hmm. piece? Yeah. Uh, one exhibitor, I can't remember where, where I found this, but they describe your work this way. See if you agree. Sam Vernon's works come from a place of pain, drawing from themes of oppression, nightmares, and memories. Her creations, although often imposing in size, evoke a haunted, haunting sense of fragility. Hmm. Does that resonate with you? They, have they got it right, do you think? <laughs> they, they do have it right, but I think that within that, um, the I was just talking to some, to some students um, Earlier here at here in Utah about this, um, within trauma and within pain and within struggle um, is also triumph, right? Is also joy, um, is also um, healing, well-being. So I think that the two can operate. Many times um, when we think about the enslaved population in this country, um, we think about um, oppression, um, of course, and violence and trauma. But within that, there was also um, hum- uh, uh, the 
um, the human element in which survival and joy um, occurred as much as as much as um, the the conditions could allow. Mm. Um, so uh, that's that's I think the only thing that's missing from that critique is okay. that. <laughs> gotcha. <laughs> so I'm, gotcha. I'm also interested in the joy that can be found. Mm. Mm. Uh, some of your work is uh, as far as I can tell from your website. And by the way, samvernon.com is the place to go if you want to see these works. And uh, we're describing them, but it's best to see them. Um, there's a uh, there's some pieces that are set outdoors. Mm-hmm. Uh, there's one that's, that's quite striking. It's called grass. Mm. You remember this this yeah. work? Mm-hmm. Uh, maybe you could d- describe it for us. Yes, I can. Um, I have been continually uh, very, very very inspired by the southern landscape. I mean, I grew up in Maryland, but I've I've spent a lot of time down south visiting family and and, and I, I think that having a kind of swampy backyard and dealing with the the beauty the beauty of the landscape in, in the southern part of the country has led me to um, consider how I could like really bring that into the work. And so there have been times that I br- I've brought my drawings outside and I've hung them from um, different trees um, in forests or I've kind of, or I've laid the drawings on grass and different things to kind of have a com- conversation a more direct conversation with the, the the landscape and the land and what that could add in, in terms of more meaning to to the drawings yeah. this one is uh, appears to be a what uh, kind of two-dimensional cutout mm-hmm. of a figure of a woman mm-hmm Looks like, um, and you've placed her on a kind of rolling, uh, coarse grass. Yes, yes. And uh, I don't know. To, to, to me, it just gave a, a feeling of fragility. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, I'm not sure what, what, what it, uh, what you were going for there. Well, I can I can speak to that a bit. I think that uh, the power of a two dimensional drawing space is that um, one can kind of can kind of see into a world, right? But what I was trying to do was sculpturally uh, deal with my drawing as, in a way that it could bend and um, operate outside of the frame, right? And so maybe what you're seeing in terms of fragility is that the paper is is kind of bending and folding in ways that, allow the articulation of the figure to look as if they are sort of falling apart <laughs> mm-hmm. but right. then building building it back up again because it's it's it still has this physicality it's not like disintegrating or anything you know so yeah. um i think that there's a, a powerful presence that paper can have when it's used sculpturally um another part here on your website i'm i'm seeing it looks like uh some photographs mm-hmm. uh you, you do some some art through photography? Yes, I do. Mm-hmm. I, I find photography is a way of seeing for me. Definitely. I take a lot of pictures. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Uh, tell me a little bit more about that. It's a way of seeing for you. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm constantly taking photos and not only as it's, it's a, it's sort it has to do with, with memory and keeping track of the things that I see that interest me. Um, it's become sort of indexical for me that I can go back and say, Oh, this was, this was something I saw out in the world that I want to make um, a work about. But I think that I also um, have have 
made objects that um, are photographically involved in the sense that I'll make the drawings, I'll photograph the drawings out in the world, or I'll um, collage those those photographs that I take into a new piece. So mm. it, it all folds back into what we were talking about yeah. earlier. Yeah. Yeah. You apparently uh, did uh, an installation in conjunction with a Lauren Hill yeah. performance. Yes, I did. That mm-hmm. sounds interesting. Tell, tell me about that. What, what was the goal there? What did, the, did they... That was did really fun. Lauren Hill's performing. Would you come <laughs> and do an installation? Is that how they phrase it? Or? That, yes, that was really fun. I'm so glad that you... Um, mentioned that because one of the things I love to do is collaborate with other artists, poets, writers. So when Lauren Hill's people reached out to me and asked me, I mean, I've been listening. I love Lauren Hill. I mean, I grew up with her. Um, very talented, Emmy Award winning rapper, singer, poet, um, musician. So I I immediately said yes, but I was even more thrilled to to find out that they wanted to do an, an installation um, at, at the King's Theater, which is this beautiful, um, newly renovated, but very historical um, theater space in Brooklyn um, that that was closed for a while and is now um, being used regularly for as a performance venue. Mm-hmm. So she was one, I think she might have been the first musician to like open up that space again. Hmm. So what did what did you do? What what was tell us about your installation? Then. I was I was it was a group exhibition. So mm-hmm. I was I was commissioned to be a part of a, a bigger conversation about um, diasporic artists. Mo- uh, many of the artists were of Haitian descent, and and that was that cultural specificity was important to Lauren. But um, it was also just a diasporic group of of black artists, like in conversation with each other. And she wanted an installation of mine um, uh, in which I kind of created a eight foot tall abstraction of a ghost <laughs> okay yeah. Go- ghost again. <laughs> yes okay. and it was all paper based mm-hmm. uh, i'm also i'm look I, I just kind of at random on your website samburden.com pulled up ghost with log this mm-hmm. is another uh, outdoor L- looks like a very long white piece of fabric is it or is it mm-hmm. a um kind of the the end the far uh, in the distance draped up the the rest of it on the ground mm-hmm running parallel to this uh, kind of this long decaying log. Mm-hmm. Yeah, at the time that I was making that, I was thinking a lot about, um, you mentioned what what authors I, I sort of look to for inspiration. I was, I was reading a lot of historical fiction at the time, and um, one of the books that really speaks to me is Beloved by Toni Morrison. And so uh, I, I was thinking a lot about how I could um, articulate how many different ways I could articulate what a ghost, specifically what um, a black haunting could look like. Um, what if the shoe were on the other foot and um, the person who was oppressed was able to, you know, haunt those that oppressed them? You know, mm. <laughs> you know. I mean, we see that we see that ghost story play out in so many different ways, um, theatrically or cinematically, or within those ghost stories that are. Our family used to tell us to scare us by the campfire, and so I was I was thinking about how I could do that um, photographically. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> what kind of reaction do you get? What uh, what? First of all, what venue? I mean, I, I, if you're at an opening or mm-hmm. something, uh, an event for an installation, you get face to face. I'm guessing maybe you know electronically as well. What mm-hmm. what sorts of reactions do you get? Oh well, th- that really depends. I mean, I've shown. 
many times curators or viewers um, will only experience a, ver- a very specific moment within my practice. Because I'm interdisciplinary, it's rare that you get to see everything that I do in one space. So as a viewer, you're, you're probably only seeing like some photographs and drawings at a gallery, or maybe you're seeing um, a part of an installation, or maybe you're seeing the entire installation, but not the, the, the kind of discrete objects that I make. So um, my <laughs> a friend of mine recently told me that my my practice is a bit elusive because you can't you're not you can't ever see everything at once and you really can't ever see it all um, from the same angle. So, <laughs> yeah. uh, is that good or bad? Advantage or disadvantage? Do you think? I think it's very ghost like. So yeah, it's very very, it. very ghost like <laughs> that, that that theme again. The theme right. again. Yes. Um, let's take another break. Come back with our final segment with Sam Vernon. Uh, she's a visual artist uh, based now in Oakland. She teaches printmaking as an assistant professor at California College of the Arts, and she was on the USU campus recently uh, to give a uh, presentation in the Communitas Lecture Series. That's a part of the USU Kane College of the Arts Year of the Arts, and uh, we uh, sat down to studio when she was uh, on the USU campus, more following this break. We're back with our final segment with Sam Vernon. She earned her MFA in painting and printmaking from Yale University, her BFA from the Cooper Union for the Advancement of Science and Art. And uh, her installations combine Xerox drawings, photographs, paintings, and sculptural components in an exploration of personal narrative and identity. And she was on the USU campus recently as a part of the USU Year of the Arts, uh, specifically the Communitas Lecture uh, Series. Uh, so that particular presentation, what's what uh, what did you present to the USU students? Oh, I, it's it's always just a conversation about. Um, I think when I speak to students, I want them to know what it was like for me when I was in school. It wasn't that long ago that I was in grad school, um, so I want I want them to know that um, I can empathize with, <laughs> with mm. them. Um, and so I, I show I showed a lot of. Um, work that I made when I was still in school, and then big projects that I um, did after. And um, I have a solo show coming up in January that um, is opening in Toronto. That's going to be the second iteration of a show that I mounted in Seattle. So I want them to see the sort of trajectory leading up to where I am now, and I I hope that that was good for them. (laughs) Um, I wonder, you said something very interesting. This might have been this New York Times interview. You said I was scared of my ideas earlier in your life. I was scared of my ideas. What did you What did you mean? I think that when you when you try to tap into um, subject matter that that has to do with um, with identity, um, politics, uh, racialized subject matter, um, as it, and also contem- as it relates to your contemporary understanding of, of where we were. And where we are now, and where we could possibly go, hopefully for the better, um, it's all a lot to take on. And my ideas within um, this this context uh, are a bit. Um, how do I say this? They're a bit. Uh, I've I've been described as kind of, kind of being within an Afrofuturistic um, mode. I've been described as. Um, being sitting within a conversation about magical realism and escapism, <laughs> so so I think that I was I was scared of my ideas because I I wasn't sure if they were uh, they were they weren't I I thought maybe they weren't real enough they maybe they weren't tangible enough for people to walk away feeling like okay 
um, I get it. <laughs> mm. But that really wasn't, that's really not the point. Yeah. Okay. I could I could see, you know, being, especially as a, a young artist starting out, right, before you're established. Mm-hmm. Um, at fear, maybe it's too, too abstract. The, right. You won't achieve that communication that you want. Exactly. But then as soon as I realized that um, racial constructions and uh, societal constructions are abstractions within themselves, a lot of that were, <laughs> was mm-hmm. able to dissolve and I could just make my work. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. What then is your advice to the, you know, students like the ones at USU that you've talked to? I think that um, it, they they are in such a great position to just, um, you know, be able to make their work in such a beautiful setting, but then also to uh, be, be able to make work here in, in Logan and then move outside of, you know, be able to make work, um, think about making work outside of this geographical location as well, because I think exposure to what's happening in different parts of the country, and then even bigger, um, different parts of the world, has is so important. And I think that that exposure has made me the kind of um, diverse artist that I am. Um, so I, I, my biggest point to them is to to always think of this as a place to work and as your center and as your hub if it's where your family is or if it's where you want to settle but also think about the possibilities outside of of Logan to to be able to visit places and then come back and have a richer studio practice. Mm. One two before we close uh, talk about a job you have had in your in your past and that is administrator of public art. Yes. This mm-hmm. was Prince George's County in, in Maryland. Yes. Um, so what was the job, first of all? And then maybe talk about the, the place of public art. Mm-hmm. So Prince George's County is near and dear to my heart because I, I went to middle school and high school there. Um, and um, I had the opportunity after I graduated from Cooper to go back and direct this public art program for the for the government, the jurisdiction of um, Prince George's. It's a it's a large ju- jurisdiction. It's almost a million. Um, it's right outside of D.C. And they have a percent for art program, which is kind of rare in the state of Maryland. We Not every um, county has it, in which 1% of the total budget for any new or major renovation project for a civil civic building has to be um, allocated for a public art commission. So say a, a new firehouse is being built, 1% of that budget, budget must go um, to, to public art. Or if a library is being renovated and it's a high-profile renovation, 1% has to go to an, to an artist in mm-hmm. that work. So it was great. I got to work with um, several artists, both from Maryland and uh, from across the country. Are there stipulations? I mean, this is public art, right? So mm-hmm. this is coming from taxpayer dollars. Uh, mm-hmm. um, does the does the law stipulate the kinds of art that it has to be, or was that totally up to you as an administrator? No, it was not up to me at all. Okay, like, it, I had to. It, a lot of my job as in that capacity was fulfilling um, the the sort of liaison <laughs> uh, uh, moments in which I needed to communicate. To the artist, well, once the artist was selected, even before the artist was selected, the the public um, and those involved in the project, whether it be police officers, firefighters, et cetera, because that would be where they would be working and 
um, needed to give their their feedback in terms of what they wanted and what they were looking for. So it really, when we talk about public art, it's like, what does the community want to see, right? Then we have to circle back and come up with some terms and conditions for um, what that could be, if it's going to be sculptural or two-dimensional, where is it going to go? These are the parameters of the space that you have. It's really a lot. I mean, mm-hmm. we have to have a whole proposal with all of these different elements involved before an artist can even be selected. Mm-hmm. Now, I'm sure, and you, I'm, I'm guessing you weren't involved in the policy debate that the, the, where, whereby the law came into, into being yeah. in the county, but I'm sure there are some who would say, you know, it's a small percentage, it's 1%, but it, that's a wasted percent that could go to, you know, quote-unquote useful Mm-hmm. Uh, aspects of the building or whatever it is. It's interesting that you say that, Tom, because while I was in that role, I did have to go to Annapolis and testify that, oh, you did? I, okay. <laughs> that I believe that the Percent for Art program mm-hmm. was integral um, to any civic building project. And the, yeah. So what was your argument then? That uh, My argument is why, that... Why, why is this needed? Why, why is it desirable? It's desirable, because, especially in a, in a state, or I'll talk about the jurisdiction, it's desirable specifically in Prince George's County because you have... Um, I was lucky enough to go through a visual and performing arts program, but um, there was an issue where many of our students were not being exposed to um, enough art education in their K through 12 um, time. And that's because maybe they were only getting art like twice a year, you know, and they had rotating teachers and and it just wasn't a priority. So how else are we going to prioritize art education and visual thinking strategies and development, if not by example? So if the government is not prioritizing it in terms of like the kinds of art they want their um, civic buildings to to um, house then how can the schools do it like how can (laughs) you know how can parents take that seriously how can the students take that seriously so I I I looked at it as a holistic um, approach to how to build um, community through art and and visibility Mm -hmm. one thing uh, here's another thing I want to get in before we close here um, I had no idea. I learned this preparing for this interview. Louis Armstrong apparently was an accomplished visual artist. Yes, he was. Yes, yes. Mm-hmm. So t- t- tell me about that. Well, I mentioned earlier that I like to fill some gaps in, with an historical memory. Um, historical memory is so much about like what what our um, collective consciousness brings up. And I think that for for us as a nation, when it comes to Louis, we obviously go to him as a singer and as, you know, an incredible master of, of the horn, you know. But it's... Um, it's very interesting that he, for, uh, for I think it was um, 30 years, 30 or 40 years, he made hundreds of collages. And you can actually go see those collages in person um, at the Queen's Museum. They're kept in an archive. And you can also go see his home that was turned into a museum in Corona, Queens. And it was through, I actually moved to Queens um, and discovered that he had these wonderful um, collages, and, and that's that prompted me to do more research, and I and I realized that he was making these collages on covers of covers of record record albums, and and that he was inserting like um, newspaper clippings of himself and his and you know his peers that were also in the industry, and they were just so beautiful, 
and very autobiographical, just his interests. Mm. And um, and then he would hang them up in his den. And the anecdote that I found out is that his wife thought that they were <laughs> – too too much and he ordered and she ordered that he take them down <laughs> and so that's when he just started working on the record albums and, okay. and not on the and not like you know gluing the the images onto the mm, wall right <laughs> but right. there's a photo of him doing it he's on a ladder mm. um installing his artwork in his den interesting and that made me think wow he was an installation artist just like me i'm gonna do a project based on this so mm-hmm. i did that for the queen's museum and then i worked with my friend abby dobson who's an incredible um, musician and vocalist and has worked with Kanye West and Talib Kweli and all these mm. great people and she um, sang in front of my piece uh, songs that were inspired by Louis and in conversation with his songs so. mm. does it make you want to take up the horn? <laughs> well I played viola for 12 years okay, I think well, I'm okay. <laughs> you, you, play an, you play an instrument that's good that's good um, so uh, j- just in closing where, where do you think you're art is going where is my art going well i i'm you know i i'm at cca and i just moved across the country from new york to the bay area i have a studio in oakland that i love and that i want to spend more time in i am um in halfway through a little over halfway through my first semester teaching at cca as a full-time faculty member so i think that the work is going in a great direction in the sense that I am in a new place and I know that being on the West Coast is going to open up a lot for me. And there are so many artists in in that part of the country that I haven't necessarily been exposed to or learned about. So I'm, I'm excited to see um, geographically how those differences are going to mm-hmm. influence the work. But I have... Right now, just a priority to rebuild my studio <laughs> practice and just focus on stabilizing in, in Oakland and preparing for my show in Toronto. Well, good luck with all of that. Thank and you. Uh, you can see a lot of uh, Sam Vernon's artwork at samvernon.com. Sam Vernon was on the USU campus recently to give a presentation in the Communitas Lecture Series. That's part of USU's Year of the Arts. And the Communitas Lecture Series is part of the Kane College of uh, the Arts. Um, Sam Vernon, a pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you, Tom. Thanks for listening to Access Utah.